Barbarian Press was established in 1977 in Kent, England, where the Elsteds worked with Graham Williams at the Florin Press, having acquired three flatbed hand presses. Together with many cases of type, they returned to their native Canada in 1978 and set up shop in Mission, British Columbia, about 50 miles east of Vancouver in the Fraser Valley, where they remain. To the English hand presses, they have added Vandercook Universal and Universal 3 proofing presses, two Chandler and Price vertical platen presses, much more type, and a small hand bindery. The presses' publications range from new translations of poetry and prose, Victorian melodrama, and new poetry to bibliography, illustrated classics, typography, and books on wood engraving. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with something that puzzled me. Apparently, a young man full of despair once approached you and wondered aloud why you bothered to continue making books, particularly when no one cares about anything anymore. And your response to this despairing youth about why you continue the difficult and non-lucrative work was quite Beckettian. Beckettian? 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 Quote, history, even one's personal history, shows that everything is redeemable. And to give up is to confess one's choice to ignore that clearest of all human facts. Despair, in any case, is a luxury of the young, and we are now of a certain age, so we go on. <laughs> Did I say that? Pretty good, darling. Well, yes. good. So, so, I have no reading. recollection of that, but I agree Who's with you. Who's the it. youth? I don't, I don't have no recollection <laughs> of that either. I suspect that Nigel's making it up. But. The, the key phrase there is shows that everything is redeemable. Does that capture anything uh, of your approach to life no i think so yeah i mean yeah. i think i think you live long enough you have to spend a lot of time examining yourself and what you've done in your relationship and your work and your in your relationships with other people and if you take the attitude that you ever reached arrived somewhere in anything what i mean in, in our marriage in our working relationship it's been an ongoing process and we've both made mistakes and we've we've had to go through this whole process of well you haven't made any well, thank you, <laughs> of, of uh, adapting to one another and reconciling things and redeeming what matters. And what does matter? Uh, well, can I just jump in? Because yeah. I, I think it goes right back to the beginning of the press where, where both of us in our various ways realized quite early on that the big jump for us was not leaving academics and because we were studying for doctorates when we learned to print and decided to do that instead. The big jump was not going from academics to going to printing books at a, in a cottage industry or private press. The big difference was discovering that we didn't live entirely in our heads, but that our hands were capable of doing things. Neither of us had really ever used our hands in any craftsmanlike way. I played instruments, which is rather different because it's an interpretive process. I also acted and so on. And Jan obviously had done things. She'd done sports and she'd done various things with her hands too. Uh, in, the, in the sense of getting on with life and doing pragmatic things, but um, neither of us had ever thought that we would become adept with tools of any kind. At least I certainly didn't, and I don't no. think you'd ever thought about it. No. Uh, my father was one of these people who was all thumbs, and as a consequence, I, I 
grew up watching him go through various Chaplin-esque scenarios, trying to make things that never worked, mm-hmm. and usually giving up before he even started. Uh, so I was never around tools, never around craft work at all when I was growing up. And I was very surprised, and Jan was too, I think, to discover that I actually had the capacity to do something with my hands, something artisanal, 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 whatever the hell that is. Um, We're having problems with the... The accent on the wrong syllable. (laughs) Anyway, artisanal, I think, is the way it was. Anyway, to do something as an artisan with with materials which had been, up to that time, completely unfamiliar to me. And I suppose the, the thing, obviously the thing which drew us into it initially was the end product. We loved books, and mm-hmm. we saw books that we thought were stunningly beautiful and had never seen books like them before. Which books? Well, I mentioned to you earlier when we were talking uh, the, the Morris books, of course, the Kelmscott books. Not that we necessarily ever aspired. Well, of course, at the beginning, we were going to be the next Kelmscott Press. I think every private press is when they start, <laughs> or some such. I think the book that we bought first that really persuaded us that this is what we should look at was a book by Graham Clark, the English artist, called The Vision of Watt Tyler, which he published at the mid, at the Ebenezer Press. It's up there, that thing wrapped in sackcloth. But at the point uh, that we got it, we, we had no sense that we were going to no, be making such no, books. No, didn't, we didn't but have any sense just, of it. We, it, was but a, the it was a revelation to realize that other people were making such books. That That is often behind creative works or, or efforts. I can do this. Yeah. I, in fact, I think I can do it better. Well, I certainly wouldn't have said that I at that thought, time. No, I don't think we. You know, we just thought we'd we'd like to do this, and and what what we recognized that the, was that there could be a relationship between the form in which something was presented and and the, the actual words themselves and the illustrations mm-hmm. and so on, and that that could enhance the experience of reading and understanding and uh, aesthetic appreciation and so on. We never really encountered that in books before. Well, the the interesting thing too is you come from a literary background rather than a than a craftsman's background. So the pleasure of giving the world your interpretation of the text, I imagine, had something to do with That's it. That's part of it, yeah. and the fact that we're publishing texts of ex- except in books which are purely about wood engraving, we're trying to publish texts which have some weight and some consequence, mm-hmm. and increasingly trying to reintroduce the canon into uh, publishing. Uh, we we still believe in the canon, not necessarily yeah, yeah. entirely <laughs> as Harold Bloom sets it up, but yeah. you know, not far off. Well, as, as you suggest, so many people who do the kind of work we do come into it from a graphic arts perspective. Uh, they've started as illustrators or designers or graphic designers or some such thing, and the the text and the type end of it quite often comes in at the end as a means of balancing out the other work they do. This is not, of course, to say that the people like that haven't uh, produced brilliant books because most of the books that are printed are in our in our little community of international private press printers are like that are from that perspective but we differ markedly from most of them in that particular regard that we come mm-hmm. in as you say from the other end well so, i was fascinated to learn that that you had actually re-edited pericles based on research that you'd done and uh, your insights into how the play should be presented I mean, that, to a large extent, came from another part of our background, which, in this case, my background, which was theatre, because I had worked as a professional actor, and I actually acted in all of Shakespeare's plays, either on the radio or on stage, and had been in Pericles twice, uh, directed it, written music for it, and loved the play for years. Could never understand why it was neglected. Partly, Mm -hmm. of course, because it wasn't very often done. Uh, We wanted to do it to get it out there as a kind of 
proselytizing move. That's another mm. motivation. Mm. Yes, to glorify Obviously. the text and to persuade yeah. people to read things that they might not otherwise read. And this this comes down to some quite small, I mean, relatively small projects like the Eve of St. Agnes. Virtually everybody would say, oh, yes, I read that in high school. But how many people have read it since? And mm. we've discovered often that when we've published something like that, people our subscribers and other people who buy it actually say, you know, I haven't read that poem since I was in high school. It's really good, isn't it? You know? mm -hmm. To me, that's the delight yeah. really, of doing this kind of thing. You, yeah. you ask what's, what matters, and I don't think either one of us really answered that question. Uh, it's a difficult question to answer, mm -hmm. right? You know, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? I guess I sort of approach it by saying, I think what matters is, is that every individual finds in his or her life something that is essentially fulfilling. That first of all, you discover who you are, and what it is that you can do which will make you feel most human and and most part of that continuity of human experience which is so rich in, in good things and bad things but it's 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 all there and we can go through life going through the motions and at the end of it look back and say what have we done or if we're if we're fortunate we can find something where we can look back and say we can see what we've done. We've got this book and this book and this book and this yeah, book, yeah. and we have these students who have who have come up along and and continued what we believe in, and other people who buy it and realize that there are people who care enough to put this this amount of work into it and 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 give us something which is going to enhance our experience of the world. And so, we're we're so fortunate that not only do we find that individually. We've been able to do it together, and, well, that, and that's the most remarkable part, I think. Yeah, I, I think one, one of the things that you're, that's implicit in what you're saying is that most people see their work and their life as two separate things. You know, they live for the weekend, yeah. they live for coming home from work. Work is something that's a necessary evil. To retire at thirty, as as I did in twenty, what through six or seven or something, as you were, when we started the press. In effect, we retired. I mean, this is a joke we make. We retired yeah. at thirty, and we've mm. been doing whatever we wanted ever since, just yeah. as you've been doing with your life. You're doing what you would do anyway. Right. It's, That's right. It doesn't it's feel like it. it's, it's not labor. Yes. It's not labor. Yes. It is work. Work is good. Well, yes. Work and sex. Yeah. It's <laughs> Freud, I think. Yeah. That's, right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You mean sex is hard work? I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, well, <laughs> not if you love it. <laughs> no, but what I guess what I'm saying is that uh, what Jan was saying, too, is that our lives are organic in the sense that, that the work and the life are all bound up in one another. It's what we do is where we're sitting right now. Yes. In the library, we're surrounded by books, some of which we've printed, others, many others are printed by friends of ours, you know. Our circle of friends is principally printers and designers and illustrators. I guess the next the question then is, can you explain why you're doing this? Is it a gift that you found what you love and, and it gave you fulfillment? And well, that's certainly a gift. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. the fact that you found each other, too. I mean, that's... Uh -huh. Well, we, we found each other first. Yeah, before. Yeah, this was uh, five and, years and before we... Yeah, we were... And we already shared an academic life and a love of literature and an interest particularly in Shakespeare and poetry. Uh, and then we were going to be academics because that seemed to be a way that we could sort of pursue that and make a living. And we both liked teaching. Then the Graham Clark book came along and we, and we went to visit him and saw what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And things just turned around. I mean, Crispin wrote a poem four friends of ours, Harry and Francis Adaskin, who were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. And he wrote a, a series of five poems called The Five Decades. And we, we had already met Graham Clark, and he had introduced us to the Hale Mill where they made paper, and he was a director there. And we, so we were kind of introduced into the world, and we thought, wouldn't it be great to print it, or have it printed, yeah. rather than just typing it up and giving it to them. Yeah. So he introduced us to Graham Williams at the Foreign Press, and in 10 days, 
we made our first book on handmade paper with the you know, Graham taking the lead, of course. I just like to mm -hmm. say that for me, I was kind of somewhat in Crispin's wake with it until I was sitting in his little parlor in the I was in the in the kitchen actually near where the parlor where the press Grand was yeah. and I was tearing working with handmade paper and tearing it and I I discovered my hands I discovered that, that my hands were capable in a way that I hadn't realized before mm -hmm. and that I could translate from what all the things that were up here through mm. my hands into something visual and give it to other people that was the gift that yeah. that moment of discovery and then well, from there it was just learning how to do it and mm -hmm. the other gift which I think has informed the way we do things too is that we were introduced and it's really just only occurred to me this way as you were talking that we were introduced to this craft at the kind of basic council if you like level we printed using handset type on handmade paper in the same county at least as Morris got his paper from mm. and uh, on a hand press uh, Walter Tracy's Albion postcard folio Albion press was the one we used to print that first piece. And taught by a master printer. And taught by a master mm -hmm. printer who worked the same way. It, it, was, it wasn't as if we, we were introduced as so many people are, and not that there's anything wrong with this, but at the end of using, starting with a Heidelberg or starting with a Vanderkrupp, yeah. we started with a hand press, right. which is not a machine, it's a tool. And you've stayed there. And Well, we still use it. Yes, we mm -hmm. use other things now too, but yeah. they're the, to me, I think to both of us, they're the center. Mm -hmm. And hand setting type is the center of what we do. You mentioned, you know, having an experience in your mind, and so by completing it or presenting it to the world, you've what? It rounds out that experience, would you say? It, it realizes it. It realizes it. Realizes it. Realizes it. Yeah. it. Yeah. It's like saying, "This is how I read this text." What it just occurs to me, I was talking to in my interview with the with the parents and students today. I had two students directing for the first time a, a really full production, and I was supervising them. And we were talking about the experience of directing, which he hadn't had before. And it, directing is rather similar. You have a vision in your head. Mm -hmm. You have a text. You have a bunch of, in this case, students, actors. And you watch it You like you're orchestrating it. You watch it unfold. And then there's a certain moment when it's alive on stage. You hear the words, and, and it's there. You, what's in your head is mm -hmm. there, and I'm watching it. Yeah, it's like conducting. It's very moving. I mean, it's you know, yeah. I, I nearly always am in tears mm -hmm. at that point when these kids have got it and they're out there in front of people and people are amazed that that their kids are out there and they don't even recognize them you know? it's like my definition of happiness is acting on an idea and that's mm. what you're doing mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. yeah it's or just on an ideal perhaps mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like conducting an orchestra which i do when when again a student group when they finally get a piece that gels and the whole thing is moving the music takes over just as the play takes over if you're directing or if you're an actor, when the lines are finally in your blood and you don't even think about remembering the lines, you just, that's, that's who you are. It's a wonderful experience. Perhaps we could get back to England. Why, why were you in England to start with? We were doing PhDs, uh, theoretically. In, in American literature. <laughs> in, American, right. in England. In Canadians <laughs> in England doing an American PhD. <laughs> we didn't right. want to go to the U.S., we wanted to go to England. <laughs> so we, we, found yeah. a, we found a, a tutor who would supervise yeah. us both. Clearly we had a, a kind of ambivalent attitude already, now that I think about it. The principal thing was we wanted to live in England. Well, it's a, it's a different, different perspective on America, <laughs> right? So we've got why you did this and, and the importance and fulfilling nature of it. And you talked about a master printer. I wonder, is there anyone that you admire particularly? Uh, Bob Barris. Uh, I, I, if you don't even know him, he's a, he's a, do you know of his The press at Scroll Road. Um, he, he still prints on, on a hand press on dampened paper. He's, in terms of his printing, it's absolutely immaculate. To me, Whittington is certainly one. Uh, John and Rose Randall. 
he's for, yeah, for he's the, such a good publisher. Publishing is mm. is to me as important, every bit as important. As the, the skill of the, the choice of text, choosing the text, yeah. proper presentation of text design, the whole the whole thing. But yeah. the publishing, it is publishing. You know what, what we're doing yeah. is publishing mm -hmm. principally. It happens to be done in an artisanal way. Uh, yeah, you want to be able to uh, appeal uh, enough to a, a market to en enable you to continue to do what yes, you love yeah, to of do. Course. Yes, of course that's true. I didn't ever think of that to Jan's disgust, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but it, that, that is true. But it also is that we want to uh, promote a text which we believe in. Yeah, right. and one of our I have to say that one of our uh, sorrows in a way is that we can't really afford to do very much in the way of new poetry. It isn't that we aren't interested in it. Uh, there are two things. First of all, that, that uh, there are a lot of classic texts which I think need to be brought back out and, and shown again. That's something that not very many other presses are doing at all. So it's, it's not that we're the only ones, but we're certainly among the few. Uh, and the other thing is that, um, to, and I'm speaking partly as a poet myself, to have one's work published for the first time by a small press like ours usually puts it beyond the reach, no matter how cheaply we try to do it, yeah. puts it beyond the reach of, of people who should be reading the work. The work should be printed in a way first, published in a way first, which is pragmatic. It should get out to as many people as possible in as cheap a form, nicely designed, well done, and all the rest of it. It needn't be bad, badly designed because it's cheap or badly printed because it's cheap, but it needs to get out there. And Unfortunately, we're no longer in a position yeah. to do it. Yeah. It's really a shame, but there yeah. I think we mentioned that you've done about 40 books mm -hmm. in total. I know when I've spoken to other uh, private press owners, uh, they talk about them as, as their children and they don't like to play favorites, although some would rather that, that some of them had never been born. But uh, <laughs> I don't know if you feel that way about uh, your I progeny. Oh, oh, yeah, you do have, I have one or two of those. I don't think we feel that about the actual text of it, and I don't think we would print something we regret having printed. Certainly, the execution of the yeah, design yeah. or the binding or the printing or, or whatever it is, it, it's not all of a of an even level. And so, mm. particularly books earlier on, so we can look back at them and say, "This is where we well, yeah, were so we at this point." <laughs> what are you most proud of? I think, from my point of view as a designer. Um, two books I like best are Pericles, which we've mm. just done, and um, a little, well, one of the small books, yeah, Jan Zwicky's uh, 21 songs, small, small songs. songs, that or, or um, Ian Hampton Finley's Table Talk, which is just basically a pamphlet, but I've always been very, very fond of it. It's very simple. Can you explain your fondness? I think with the Finley piece, it's, uh, first of all, that I like the text immensely. It's, mm. it's a series of aphorisms, and they're just delightful. One of them, by the way, in reference to our discussion about artists, art versus craft, reads that in a secular age, craftsmen become artists and therapies, philosophies. <laughs> like that very much. But it was printed on a, a paper which I like a lot, called, made by Turkey Mill in the 30s sometimes. It's a mold made, quite a rough, masculine kind of paper, which suits Ian. In polyphilus, 16-point polyphilus, first time we'd ever used it, a rather worn type. But it has a thing. kind of honesty about it. Yeah, it's, 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 it's like Ian. It's, it's, it's right direct. there, and he's yeah. very blunt. And again, it does justice to the it author. It does justice yeah. to the author and justice to the text. And mm -hmm. it's uh, just black with, with red pilkros at the beginning of each aphorism. And I'll show it if I can dig one for, out. I'll show it for me, the sure. two books would be, uh, one would be Pericles. I mean, Pericles is basically the avatar. I mean, it was not, not just because of it, how it ended up, but the whole process of making it was the most 
uh, collaborative and uh, creatively exciting that we've done. It was it's exciting to design. It was, yeah. and for me to print because every opening was different, and there was a collaboration with with Simon, who was just uh, wonderful to work with. And, and, and he would be the Simon the engraver. Brett, Have you engraver, seen it? Who is he's he's the most intelligent Jesus. illustrator that imagine he, he, he understood the text as well as, as you did and so they yeah. would have these conversations about how to illustrate this moment how mm -hmm. to bring it alive yeah. and so a, for me it was very literate illustrator. every yeah. every opening was something I, I could revel in and never became automatic I think everything came together in that as not perfectly nothing's ever perfect but as close as we've ever done mm. and then the second thing for me as a printer was Peter Lazaroff's Engravations 3 yeah. because it was enormously challenging to do his engravings and gratifying at the same time because no one really knew his work before and he's just the most you know, spectacular engraver. Well, I, I mean, technically, he's technically. utterly brilliant. I yeah. mean, he caused a real stir when it came out. The but engravers his, just his went blocks were diabolical to print. And Why so was that? Because he used to hand rub them, so he w there wasn't a concern as to whether or not they were level, whether they were type high. So there was one block that was, in fact, a sixteenth of an inch difference from one corner to the other. And it was above type I, so I could, so I was wanting to print on the Vandercook because of its size. You know, it was it was just kind of a, the biggest challenge I've ever had to overcome. As a, a a collector, and I'm speaking with uh, Crispin and Jan Elstead, the proprietors of the Barbarian Press, based in Mission, British Columbia. Double-barreled question here. First of all, someone who loves fine press printing. How would you recommend they approach collecting in this field in general? And specifically, what might you recommend they start off with yours? Well, as to the first part, the answer used to be, and to some extent might still be, that you collect ephemera. In the old days, everybody used to print, we, we did, all the other presses used to print prospectuses and so on, mm -hmm. books, and those yeah. were and, uh, very collectible little pieces from the press and so on. Nowadays, very few of us do it anymore because everything is done online, and that's that's one of the things I really regret. You mean like uh, sending uh, the prospectuses? Uh, sending prospectuses out yeah. by post. Yeah. Or, or now, we do usually. Although do we some, still do a prospectus. We do occasionally yeah. do. We did one for Pericles. In fact, we did two for Pericles, and we've done one for Kerwin. The big projects, we tend to do it. Uh, if a fair is coming up, we'll sometimes do one for a, a new book, now, just so people have something to take away, but for the most part, not. So the obvious thing to do, assuming that when people are starting to collect, they don't want to jump in too far right away until they have a sense of their taste and have tested the ground a little bit. I suppose to go to a good collection on a university library, a special collection or something, and have a look at, at some press books and get a sense of where you might like to begin. Who might uh, speak to you. And who, yeah, yeah. Who, who, that's right. Who might speak to you, whose style would, would suit your style as a reader as, as a, in your visual sense of how books should be. Of course, the other approach, I don't know why I didn't think of this first, is who publishes things you want to read. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if, if, it, if text is, is an issue. Uh, I mean, a lot of press books, the text is treated not as well, I should say, as the design of the book and the illustrations are. That's less the case, perhaps, now as it used to be, but it's still very much there. Would it, would something else useful would be to get a hold of parenthesis too and have a look? Yeah, that's either right. Either subscribe to it, which is the, uh, the, the house organ of the, yeah. the association. Yeah. Yeah. There are two a year, and it represents what's going on at the, at the current moment, and it goes back a number of years as well. So yeah, there are reviews of uh, all sorts of books and, and, and you know, pictures, illustrations, mm -hmm. and stuff. And the other thing is to get hold of a book like the one we're looking at from the Codex Foundation, Book Art Object. 
mm-hmm. which is a co- compilation of many of the important presses right now, not just in the States and Canada, but in Britain and around the world. And we'll show you at least some pictures of what the books look like and so forth. Ultimately, you have somehow to see the books and handle them, I think, if you can before you buy them. Going to book fairs is a good way of doing that. If you go online and Google a press, you can find some dealers who carry books and it might be that there's someone in your neck of the woods and you can go and visit them and look at the books there. But so I do think it's important to see them and feel them yeah. in your hand yeah. before yeah. you take the jump. But in terms of, if you were kind of trying to, someone were trying to get a sense of, of the range of our books, I would, I think Hoy Barbaroi would be an obvious place to go. And then, which is? Which, which is the bibliography, the, 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 the 25th bibliography of the press and history of the press. End grain, uh, contemporary wood engraving in North America. If someone were to collect, just say they would have somebody interested in wood engravings. And that took hold, didn't it? At some point, your appreciation of wood engraving started in the eighties. Eighty-four, actually. The first first book we did was the Christmas Carol with wood engravings by Edwina Ellis. And what was it about wood engravings that got you uh, excited? They're they're perfectly idiomatic for hand printing, Mm -hmm. Uh, and Mm -hmm. for me as a printer, then that working on the on these these blocks and I did ink them print them by hand on an Albion at that point it just was every time you op- I opened up the frisket and looked at the, the, the printed image it was mm. just like it was a new birth every time it was they were made thing. for each other and it's a relief they're, process they're, just like type they're completely compatible you know doing it that way and, and the uh, impression of the engraving into the paper gives it a three-dimensional quality which is all what letterpress is all about sorry I, I interrupt I'm at oh. about five minutes Okay. I apologize. Not a problem. So if you have anything particularly for me... Well, is there, in terms of the aspect of the business, if you want to call it that, what you're doing and what you do specifically, Mm -hmm. is there anything that you'd like to express? Because what what is it that you do primarily? Oh, okay. Well, I I do all of the printing. There's hardly an exception to that because Crispin doesn't really care for it. I don't really like typesetting, although we can both do both. But you love what? Again, it's that that business of of seeing the visual representation of what is a combination of both our imaginations and the imagination of the of the artist. I like to see the, the tangible thing in front of me and there's, it's such a measurable process. I can, you know, if, if I'm successful or not, whatever standard I set for myself, which is as high as I possibly can, uh, I know exactly what I've achieved. There's never any question about it. Do you set your sights on this person in Ohio you mentioned? Mm-hmm. Do you say, okay, I'm going to be as... No, you don't think it's, it's not a competitive thing. It's n- no, it's not competitive no. at all. And, okay. and I, I, I don't think I, I can look at anybody and say, I wish I could do that. Occasionally I see things, I go, how did they do that? Uh, oh, I know who, young guy, Russell Merritt. Right. I, I look at what he does, and it's just extraordinary passion for detail and for doing typographical lettering and coloring of pigments and registration. All that technical stuff I, I, I find somewhat baffling, because I'm much more a get in there and do it and kind of work with it and, and figure out a way than I, uh, rather than kind of planning all ahead right. how it's all going to work. I kind of, a trial and error, I've developed the techniques that are that work for me. I am working on a, a book on printing wood engravings. How to? How to, yeah. My experience of it. So it's not going to be so much a how to as a journal. Here's how the, I did it. This is how I, how I did it. This is what I suggest. Because, you know, it's a craft that needs to be handed on. Why do you think it needs to be handed on? Well, because, you know, I've 35 years now of doing this, and I've learned some things along the way. Somebody comes behind me. What a waste to have to spend 35 mm-hmm. years 
explaining all what I what I on found the shoulders out, of giants. Yeah, <laughs> we you know we all need to learn from each other. We all need to 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 feed and inspire and and you know move it all forward and keep it alive. Because as much as books are going digital and all that, uh, that I don't think we're ever going to lose the the necessity for the tactile and for the sensual experience of the book. Why not? Why why won't we lose that? I think it's a basic human need. I don't think we can separate ourselves and and put put everything the world out there on a on a screen or in you know in a in a phone. We need as human beings we still are all going to, going to need that sense of touch, sense of being part of organically of the world. The sensuality. Of I mean, I have I, I I have to believe that. I mean, to me humanity stops if we don't keep doing that and that's not going to happen so i'm going to try and weave in something about redeeming here <laughs> <laughs> yes. redeeming might be the sense of sometimes it gets lost for a while and needs to be rediscovered mm. and passed on in, in you know through different eyes and hands in different ways which is what happened in the 50s and 60s at the letterpress when it was starting to go out in photo setting and then offset was coming in and everyone was dumping letterpress right and left which yeah. is how our generation found the stuff and started doing it again most yeah. of, most of the presses that we find in presses at least for people our age are um, saved from the scrap heap yes. effectively yes excuse me I'm yes. so sorry not at all continue with this but I have no, to go no. talk to a parent it's nice yeah. to meet you yes likewise okay okay bye 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 you were asking a few minutes ago about who we admired. I mentioned Whittington, which is absolutely one of the one of the best. I think for me, maybe the, the my favorite press. I think we have more Whittington books than any other contemporary press. But many of the Dutch printers are the printers whose designs I like best. Bram de Vos, for example, uh, or um, just Dutch type design generally, and, and Dutch book design seems to me to have. It's not the way I design at all. But it's something that I that I love because of its cleanness and uh, its spare quality. It's very elegant, very classical, and I have a large side of that in me. You know, uh, the other side in of your me blood, is in my sensibility. Ashendine, you were saying, it's the same. Ashendine, spare. well, yeah, but oh, you can hardly call Ashendine spare, but compared to the Kelmscott, yes. it certainly is. Doves, on the other hand, I find rather chilly, and I don't like Cotton Sanderson. I said somewhere in a review once that I considered him a metaphysical punk. I really don't care for him, so I don't much care for his books either. Will Reuter uh, is a huge fan. Will yeah. and I have never thought about that. <laughs> right. We might one day, who knows. You no, know, I admire Cobb Sanders. I admire yeah. the books. I just is. don't like them. I don't warm to them. And we have the Bible, and I, I, I do admire it enormously, but I don't love it the way I love the Count Scott Chaucer. There's a side of me which likes austerity. As a poet, certainly that's true in much of my later work particularly, and in music I tend to like sometimes music which is quite spare. But I have another side, equally balanced, which is full of a love for the ostentatious and the Baroque and everything. Robert Bringhurst and I talked about, our, as poets, talked about our poetry. And I, I mentioned to Robert once that he, he writes poetry for uh, flute and drum, and I write it for full orchestra and chorus. <laughs> it's just the kind of noise we like to make. Now, what about the typography? Typographically, it's rather the same. I mean, I certainly, I, I don't think I'm, I hope I'm not ostentatious as a, as a typographer, but if you look at Robert's book design, it's not more like the Dutch. It has a much clearer line to the Dutch than mine does. I like warmth in a book. What I conceive of as warmth, uh, a kind of humanity, a kind of Falstaffian quality, you know? Specifically, what would relay that to you then? Oh, um, generosity of page size, some use of color, choice of type. For example, I have never cared 
although I admired them again. I've never particularly cared for Zapp's typefaces. Palatino was for one thing, one time was a just everywhere. You couldn't go anywhere without looking at it. And it's unexceptionable as a typeface. It's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Composes perfectly and all the rest of it, but I would never use it. To me, it's it's somewhat po-faced, just a little too serious. I like type with a twinkle in its eye. I like polyphilus because, it, in a way, it's a typeface, which is a mistake. You know the story of polyphilus, the, the typeface. It's a copy of the typeface used by Aldous in the Hypnericomachia Polyphily, which is one of the very great, maybe the greatest early book, greatest of his books, perhaps. When Stanley Morrison wanted to create a typeface based on this, he was sent photographs of some pages from the Hypnericomachia Polyphily. And he used that as the model for the polyphilus typeface. So it was virtually a copy. After the type was cut and cast and they proofed it up, he saw some other pages, another copy of the Hypnericomachia polyphony, and realized that the pages they'd used had been over-inked, which is why the polyphilus has that rather heavy, I think, warm quality to it. It has a, a kind of robustness that I like enormously. We used it for Pericles. We used it, uh, well, I, for the Ian Hamilton Finley pamphlet I mentioned, and one or two other places. I think it's probably my favorite of the classical faces to use, closely followed by Bembo. It's very flexible. You can set virtually anything in Bembo, which is usually a condemnation of a typeface, but uh, there are some things I wouldn't use Bembo for. Like what? Well, I wouldn't, for example, set an essay on the Bauhaus in, in Bembo. I wouldn't <laughs> set Eliot in Bembo. Uh, you know, there, there are certain... Why not? I think Eliot needs something more like I mean, Spectrum, maybe? Uh, something much, much uh, again, slightly more austere, more slender, drier, drier. It's very odd. I find myself sometimes describing typefaces rather than the way people describe wines, you know? Mm. Big shaggy nose and decorum <laughs> pushing about under the surface, that kind of thing. And yet it is invisible to most people. It is, that's true. But I suppose, in a way, wine is just wine to a lot of people, whereas if you pay attention to what's going on, all of these nuances come out and, and make a difference. They do. The thing is that most people look, especially now with computers, most people look at typefaces in such a cursory way that they don't really ever take them in. I you might know, disagree with you, though, on that, because at least now, if you're in Word or some word processing uh, software, you, you can pull down a whole list of them and you can see what they look like. Well, that's precisely my point. All you're seeing is one or two words, the name of the typeface or something. The only way really to understand a typeface is to read a text, in it, a text of some size. Yeah. And beyond that is to read the same text in two or three different typefaces. Because it's really in contrast or, or comparison to one another that you begin to understand how typefaces work. But I suppose in most cases it's working underneath the surface because you don't really know what's going on unless you pay attention. If a book is really well designed, the typeface appropriately chosen and well set, you shouldn't notice the type. And that means that it's good. It means it's good, yeah. and if you look at it in a, and read it in a different typeface, mm -hmm. you may feel, feel differently, feel yeah. less feel differently about the pleased text. about reading it. I would say, for example, that if you were to read King Lear, let's say, in Centaur and King Lear in Polyphilus, you would get two quite different experiences of the text. Centaur, which is another typeface I admire but would never use, I find very delicate and rather perfumed, even slightly effeminate. It's a lovely face. The only thing I would think of setting it in would be probably something like Racine or Corneille or something of the French Enlightenment. You know that It was in fact written, of course, to, or, or first designed to, to be uh, used in a French text. So it may very well be that that's precisely what Rogers was after. But I'm dismayed by the way it's used all over the place. I mean, Centaur has become a very popular face because it is so attractive. It mm -hmm. is lovely, but it doesn't suit 
very yeah. much. I don't think it has very much versatility. But it's used because of its intrinsic beauty rather than its appropriateness. Rather than its appropriateness, yeah. And it's it's the kind of beauty which I think is slightly, um, what, I was going to say ephemeral, it's not the word I want, but it's a bit misty, a bit wispy, you know? Yes. It doesn't have very much traction somehow as a typeface visually to me, whereas, say, a face like Polypolis has all kinds of, all kinds of traction, uh, as does Baskerville, as does, well, Bimbo. By traction, I mean simply that it, it holds the eye without interfering with the apprehension of the eye. You run uh, workshops periodically here in, in Mission. Mm -hmm. uh, is this something that, uh, and again, it's part of the important role as, as educator, passing, passing on along, yes, mm -hmm. the craft. Yes, we started doing them in the 90s. They were, from the beginning, quite well attended. We could only have a few people, as you have back gathered being around here. We don't have vast amounts of room, so... Usually we limited them to five. I think once we had six, and it was a real jam. Okay. Because people tend to stay with us as well when they're uh -huh. here. So we have people parked all over the floor and on the couches and everything else. We take over six days, six full days, the whole week. And we begin with a bit of a background on private presses and the history of the book. Each of the students is, is asked to bring a text of a specified length. No more than five or six hundred words of prose or a maybe a couple of sonnets or a, a poem. And each student designs a, a pamphlet, which is sewn into wraps at the end. The setting, because most of them have never set tight before, and it's not, as you know, when you're starting out, it's not a very quick process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Humbles a person. It, it does tend to, yeah. And then we take them out to the press room and get them set up with a typeface, having chosen a typeface with them, and try to guide them into choosing a typeface that's appropriate for what they've chosen to print talk about some of their design ideas and get them setting the type as quickly as possible. So it's, it's a very rapid process, of course. This is only really a glimpse of what one has to learn if it's going to go on doing it. And then we, once they've set the type and they've got their title page all sorted out and everything, then they get handed over to Jan, and Jan takes them through the printing process, and they end up with these little pamphlets at the end of the week. They're useful for us because they give us uh, a, a breath of fresh air. We get different perspectives, and mm. they get enthusiasm, to enthusiasm yeah. and a chance to stand back from our own work and look at things through someone else's eyes. Uh, it also satisfies our interest in teaching, of course. Several of the people who've gone through our workshops have actually ended up setting up presses mm. themselves and going on with them. You know, it's, it's been a very valued part of our, of our work. It is important, either by example or by direct instruction, to keep the craft alive, to make people aware of it. Why do you think that is? Partly for the reasons that Jan said. I think that tactility, the sensuality of knowing, is something which we need to keep alive. I want to keep drilling there, though. Well, because we're sensual animals. Um, why, why can't we just touch something else? Oh, well, we can touch something I'm not. I don't mean necessarily just books. Uh, I mean the world other than the digital world. The, what do they call it? The, the, the virtual. The virtual world. <laughs> it's always a phrase which gives me the whim-whams. But. <laughs> but okay, but we're making the case for the book. I, and I have to speak for myself, and of course I'm a dinosaur. I'm 64 years old. I was raised with books. I have a not even a love-hate, a, 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 an acceptance-hate relationship with computers, I suppose. Texts are perceived differently mm -hmm. through, from a computer screen than they are when well, they're on the, paper, printed it, on paper. As you say, too, that you know you take a picture of the brain and it actually operates differently yes, when exactly. you're reading. That's what I understand. Yeah. I well, I'm saying that there's a canon in place which uh, of, of literature. I'm speaking. Let's just speak of literature for the moment, not yeah. necessarily simply the promulgation of knowledge, but literature. There's a literature which has been created in all languages, not just English, which was created in a world in which reading in the sense of a physical book, an object, was the process by which these were apprehended. The understanding of them which has been passed on, the way they were intended to be read, and the way they've been interpreted and passed on as 
exemplars of a certain way of thinking, a certain social attitude, a certain philosophical position, all have come through that process. So I think to keep the canon alive, we need, first of all, we need books. I'm not saying that you can't put Shakespeare up digitally and all these other things are all there. We can all pull these things off the bed if we want to for quick reference, but for reading, that is for the considered habitation of a text. To habitate it in the way that when it was originally written, to get that the, the same experience, you have to actually turn a page. I think so. Yes, and that's the other thing. It's the whole sequential element, the way in which uh, yeah. a text is revealed. And the way in which you can search a text mm -hmm. by hand, which you can't do with a computer. Now, yeah. you, I mean, it's true, of course, you can plug a word into a search engine and pop yeah. up, they're all there, you know. Every use of the word thumb in War and Peace can be yours for the yeah. having, but yeah. the process is not the same. Yeah. It's, like, it's like the digitization of library catalog cards. It's, so yeah. much was lost when those cards were dumped and the thing was put digitally. Not the information, but clearly that was still there, except when it's been once or twice, unfortunately, erased. But what was lost is the process of searching. We, the things you come across by serendipity in and around the something you're actually looking for. And, and some information which was considered to be of little consequence, provenance, for example, or notes about the text, which were often written on the backs of these cards. Yeah. Like marginalia, really. Like marginalia, yeah, which are lost. And that speaks to another aspect of the digital side of things, which I think is insidious. And that is that we are determined to erase history. The, di yeah. the digital world tends to look forward, but not backward at all. Mm. And it's not reflected. This is a defense of the book, but what about a defense of the finely printed book? I don't know that one needs to defend an attempt or a successful attempt to create a thing in the most suitable way, which is always the most beautiful way. You know, beauty is, is useful. It's not just a, a bit of excess. Be beauty is a, is, is a central thing. It's essential. It's, it's a useful point. So that if you've created a book well in that the best possible way, whether you do it by letterpress or whether you do it offset, you've done it the right way. I mean, when you when you talk about the press book, the artisanal book, you take a book like our little edition of the Eve of St. Agnes, which I mentioned earlier on. Of course, you can find that text printed beautifully by any number of, of uh, processes, including other private press books, I'm sure, and, and certainly offset books of every description. You can find it in anthologies and collections of Keats and everything else, illustrated and not. But what you get when you get our edition is our reading of the poem and Andy English's reading, who was the illustrator for it. So you get a reading of the text, which is as viable as one actor reading it as opposed to another actor or another person reading it. The same question, I think, arises if someone were to say, well, look, I've seen Twelfth Night, I don't need to see it again. It's, each is a unique experience. Each is a unique experience, and each yeah. is an interpretation of the text through mm. a, a more or less informed, depending on who it is, a more or less informed mind and sensibility. I mean, there are totally cretinous performances of Shakespeare, where the productions go completely against the text and make mm. no sense whatsoever. But even in those, there's sometimes a, a, an interesting notion. My concern is that very often with press books and performances of plays and operas and so on, uh, you have a situation where a particular point is, is noticed, and you say, wouldn't it be interesting if we did it such such a way? And the entire thing becomes skewed because it's all done from that one fairly minor perspective. I can tell you an example. Ian McKellen's production of Richard III, which was filmed a few 10, 15 years ago. Brilliant. Brilliant in many ways, yeah. Um, all kinds of interesting bits and pieces. Uh, when his jeep gets overturned at the end and he says, a horse, a horse, yeah, by yeah. kingdom for a horse. Of mm -hmm. course, it's a new way of seeing the line, right? Yeah. But it isn't a particularly useful way of seeing the line. But what, more to the point, I think the notion that this was set in kind of fasc the fascist 30s and all the Woodvilles, the sort of new nobility, 
were Americans. I mean, it's, it's clearly an echo of the whole Wallace Simpson thing. Again, it's, it's like a remark at a cocktail party. It's fun, it's interesting, but I question whether one should build an entire production around that. Well, the same thing applies to, to private press books, and I, one doesn't wish to name names, but there, there are certainly editions of classical texts or canonic texts done by private presses which don't do the text proper service because they put the text in the position of being subservient to a notion by the printer or the designer. And the notion is ephemeral to the text. You're saying then it's a poor performance because the actual typeface, let's say, or the layout or the paper is chosen more in aid or service of this notion. But then again, the notion is their interpretation of the text. Yeah, but when I say a notion, I mean one particular bit of it. You're just picking up one little thing and saying, well, let's go with that. In closing then, obviously you believe in the importance of what you're doing. I wonder if you could, two things then, explain that importance and convey it to a young person who may be inclined in the same direction. Um, first of all, I think I should say that I don't believe that if none of our books had ever been printed, the world would be a much worse place. This is not the yeah. point I'm making. I think the work is important. It's important on a certain, at a certain level. I mean, it's not earth-shaking just so that that's out there. But that said, I think there are three things which need to be emphasized and passed on and, and understood by people, and I think they're in danger of disappearing, probably largely because of the nature of the digital age. First is delight. Delight is not happiness. It's not the same thing as happiness. It's not the same thing as joy. It's not the same thing as apprehension in the sense of learning. It's all those things combined into a sense of well-being as a consequence of having taken in a text or a piece of music or you or a, an animal or whatever it is that you're delighted in. I think the digital world, the apprehension of information on the, or through the medium of a computer, is less inclined to give delight because, first of all, it's too quick, it's too ephemeral, and secondly, because the digital way of looking at the material that comes through the computer is that it is information, not that it's knowledge. And I think the distinction between information and knowledge is one that needs to be understood, and it's in knowledge that delight lies. The second thing is proportion. Uh, proportion in the sense of understanding the relative importance of one thing to another. Uh, proportion is pos mo probably most obviously exemplified to me. I mean, you can talk about proportion in architecture and proportion in... Uh, the mass of or the way a painting is constructed or a photograph is composed. But I mean proportion in a very basic sense, and that is as it's best exemplified in the sense of humor. The reason we laugh at things or cry at things is because of the proportion or the disproportion of them within the great scheme of our lives or of life as we see it or the world or whatever the forum, the theater happens to be for this particular moment. And to me, proportion is something else which gets skewed if you don't have art, artisanal art, painting, sculpture, architecture, music, finely printed books, poetry, and so on. Uh, because proportion comes from a human, in both its strength and its failures, a human apprehension of the world, an understanding of, of life which can't be filtered through a number of, of codes and, and algorithms and turned into some kind of meaningful entity. It's something which has to be lived. It's a process. And it takes time. And time, computers are not interested in time. They're interested in getting rid of it and being as quick as possible. Instantaneous is what computers like. Mm -hmm. 
neither delight nor proportion. You can't be instantaneous. They simply can't be. And the third thing is decorum. You may probably know that proportion and decorum were two key elements in the Elizabethan approach to prosody, that is, to the construction of verse. Proportion in the sense of, of uh, taking an argument and constructing it in a way which was effective, or in the way of making a line which so of poetry which sounded well, and so on. That was proportion. But decorum had to do with the uh, relative relationship between the different parts of a work, or of works related to one another. We now use decorum, if we use it at all, to mean manners. And mm -hmm. manners, in fact, is, is part of that. Uh, what we call manners is a process of behave, behaving in a way, decorously we would say, which allows everyone in a room, in a conversation, in a company, in some sort of gathering, in a business, to work affably, genially, and effectively with one another. And through that affability and that geniality and that effectiveness to be able to achieve what in common everyone wishes to achieve and what the individuals wish to achieve within that company as themselves, within that group as themselves and in relation to other people or groups of people. So decorum, again, on the, on the Internet, decorum is something which goes completely by the way if, for example, you look for information, in quotes, on Wikipedia, let's say, or if you Google something. What you get is not proportion, first of all, because you just get the, the, the top thing is the one that's had the most hits, and the bottom thing is the one that's had the least. But the bottom thing may, in fact, be the one that's closest to some truth or some real understanding. Or the top thing may have been what someone paid to put there. Or Exactly. Yeah, yeah. There could be any number of reasons there. So proportion goes out the way. And decorum, because, uh, well, let's take a, the social forums, right? You look at comments on, a, uh, on an article in a newspaper, and you discover an extraordinary range of what we might think of as, as representative of the human or the social condition. You get everything from people coming out with you know, filthy execrations of people and, and all sorts of slanderous remarks if they're not cut off before that, to long and rather turgid and probably quite le often quite learned dissertations on things which nobody reads because they're too long and nobody reads a text longer than about ten lines on the net anyway, and everything in between. Mm -hmm. and, and that's not even taking into account the different attitudes towards the ideas as they might be in the article which is being discussed. So we, we have there a lack of proportion because nothing is in any sense put into place with anything else. We're left to do that, but there's not enough space for us to see what we need to order. And the quorum is gone because there's no intercourse between the people who are making the comments. They're all out there individually coming out with their ideas in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. There's no social integration any longer. So I think books, uh, because they are both personal interpretations on the part of the designer and the publisher, and the writer, of course, first and foremost the writer, books are apprehended using all those three things. They use proportion, they use the quorum, and they result in delight because they pass through a human, echt human filter or group of filters. They are created through the human spirit, created through hands, created through ideas. Both the abstract and the, and the concrete entities or parts of the human condition are represented in books. And I think we need to have books and will continue to need to have books so that people will sometimes slow it down enough to be able to be delighted. And to be human. And to be human, which is in a way part and parcel of the same thing. Our motto at the press is a, is a phrase from Horace's Ars Poetica, utile dulce, which means the useful with the beautiful. I said before that beauty is useful, and it is, but usefulness is also beautiful. The two are completely inextricable to us, and I think that's what I mean by what I've just been saying. Probably yeah. too much length. No, it was beautifully said and, and useful to listen to. Just finally, it, when, you, when you were talking, I was thinking about the importance of a sense of wonder. Mm -hmm. 
part of delight. And I think that what you've done is you've produced objects that enable that, produce that. I hope we have, but I hope the wonder isn't at the technique that we've used, but rather at the text that's shown by that technique. I think it's often the case that when people look at things which are made by hand, especially in our lifetime when it's been much less common than it was before, they are simply thunderstruck with the fact that this has happened, with the phenomenon of the thing, and sometimes don't get past that to the thing itself. The fact that you want people to read these books. That's exactly it, yes. We yeah. want them to read the text. Uh, I was re reading a book, I'm reading a book at the moment, a wonderful book by a man named Edmund Duval called The Hair with Amber Eyes. I don't know if you've come across it. It's a, a book about some netsuki, little Japanese carvings, which he inherited, and he tracks down the history of these carvings over many generations of his family, and, and quite a lot of interesting history. It's one of these books that wanders all over the place like a puppy tracking a beetle. It's my favorite kind of book. And in it, he's, he's quoting a, a Japanese potter talking about the nature of what he does and suggesting that what makes an object beautiful a mass-produced object, like a bowl or a cup or a spoon, something very, very simple, very beautiful, is not that it's connected with any particular person, but the very fact that it isn't. That a good potter, for example, will make thousands of bowls, and they're all beautiful because, sure, partly it's because they're all slightly different, they, they all, they're all unique, but it's also beautiful because the ego has gone from it. It's become so ingrained in the hands of the potter that he no longer has to think about what he's doing. And in that sense, it becomes pure form, pure beauty, pure usefulness. A bowl, in fact, is a very good example of a metaphor for what I'm talking about. It's like with acting, when the words finally sink into your blood and you become the character on stage, it's no longer about Laurence Olivier or, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow or whoever it is who's acting. It's about the character, it's about the words, it's about the situation that's going on. And when we lose that sense of ego, I think, is when we first begin to understand what's what's behind the process, what the what the play or the music or the book is all about. It's why I intensely dislike the use of the word artists in connection with what we do. The term book arts drives me wild, and book artists and artist books, uh, I mean, I understand that there are people who do these, these books who see the whole thing quite a different way from me, and that's fine, that's perfectly legitimate and very interesting, but it, as far as our books are concerned and the kind of books we do, I really intensely object to having them referred to as works of art. They're not. They're works of craft, but they are first and foremost texts presented as best they can be presented. It's best we can do it. Thank you for doing it. I've been speaking with Crispin Elstead, and prior to that, both Crispin and Jan Elstead, in your lovely uh, book-lined study here close to Mission of British Columbia. Thanks again for your time. Thank you very much.